Thanks for listening to the RTS Washington Faculty Podcast. I'm Timo Sazo, Director of Admissions and Executive Producer and Editor of this podcast. In this episode, Dr. Scott Redd talks about a concept I can't pronounce, its definition, how it's used in the Bible, and how preachers and teachers can employ it for the benefit of their audiences. To find out what it is, just read the title or listen to the episode. It starts now. All right, Scott, um, a few years ago, you wrote an article called Saying It Anew, Strange Making as a Pedagogical Device. And you deal with a concept called defamiliarization, or however it's said. Or you, you could say estrangement if you want. Estrangement is easier. Estrangement or defamiliarization. Can you um, unpack that a little bit and how that has bearings on teaching and preaching? Well, it came out of my dissertation, actually going back to uh, around 2008 or so when I was writing my dissertation. I was looking at the difference between Hebrew poetry and Hebrew prose in the Bible, and I was trying to, to, to unpack what was going on there with that distinction, because it is, it does seem to be a kind of strong distinction in the scriptures. The authors follow different rules and, and they, they, they write different, differently when they're writing in verse or in numerically regulated speech. And one of the concepts that I stumbled upon was this concept by uh, that's articulated actually in, in sort of American literary circles, but by a, a gentleman who's a Russian formalist named Viktor Shklovsky. And I'm not going to attempt to say the word that he uses for it in Russian, but it is related to the word estrangement or what in English we often call defamiliarization. And for him, he's really kind of reflecting on how humans engage with a topic in a literary text. And, 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 and actually, it's kind of broader than just literature, too. But if you think about it, this is kind of an everyday experience for us, you know, things that are extremely familiar often pass us by without being noted or experienced is the way that he talks about it. You know, I could ask you, for instance, what happened on your commute last Tuesday, you know, and here in Washington, D.C., at least during normal times, we're used to commutes. And it's really hard to remember unless something strange happened, like a car accident or you pulled over for speeding, you know, or you ran out of gas. If that didn't happen, you probably don't remember your commute because you do it every single day and it just kind of happens. Right. You also have that experience. I think sometimes when we go on a when we go on a long vacation, you know, I just got back from traveling for three weeks and I came home and I kind of noticed things about my house that aren't new but I had stopped noticing them before because they had become familiar, you know, like, oh, I, I forgot that I put that plant over there in that corner and that kind of thing, because you're kind of seeing it afresh. And that's, that's Shklovsky, Victor Shklovsky's argument is that good literature subverses, you know, kind of comes and undermines human experience to make you see things afresh, to make you see things anew. He even says it creates a, a tension or a friction between the reader and the topic. And it slows you down so that you see things that you maybe thought you understood, but you don't understand. You know, in, in, in teaching at a seminary, 
we often see this happen. You know, you have someone come in who's been, who's grown up in the church and they think they know all these Bible stories really well. And then you start pointing out things to them that they thought they knew. And it can take a while actually to get them to actually see the story in a new way. Um, and it's also exciting when they do, because all of a sudden now they're experiencing it afresh. They're experiencing it in a new way. And I found that actually this is, this is happening throughout the scriptures. This is happening in poetry. And this actually also happens in prose too. You know, we see a lot of examples of biblical authors teaching what might be familiar covenantal concepts to an audience, but using new terminology or tweaking the terminology so that the audience is kind of forced to experience the thing in a new way. You know, and I'll, I'll give you a couple of quick examples of that. In the Old Testament, it's very clear that faith and, and a right view of God and proper worship emerges out of the word of the Lord and the fear of the Lord. Okay, that terminology is used and, and loving the Lord your God with all of your heart and your soul and your strength. So those are kind of common covenantal ideas. But think about how the author of Psalm 1 takes that idea and he says, let's talk about trees. Let's talk about how trees work. And he gives this expression of a tree and a tree has its roots. That's the part you can't see that's underground. And that's the part that's by the stream of water. And therefore, when the tree you know, bears fruit, it's, it's, it's regular and it's consistent. Its leaf stays green. It bears fruit in its season. And that's because it's rooted on the stream. And if, and if you're an agrarian, you know, you're living in Hebrew times, Israelite times, you know, you're used to thinking about agrarian topics, but you're probably not used to thinking about agrarian topics in light of yourself. And suddenly you take this one thing that you know, which is how a tree grows. You say, wait, that's kind of how my faith and my worship is too. You know, and Jeremiah takes that theme and kind of tweaks it a little bit. And he says, not only does it bear fruit in its season, but it also bears fruit when the drought comes. So notice he's kind of playing with the metaphor a little bit. And, and what's the drought? Well, the drought is when it's not raining. In other words, his implication is when it's raining, everybody bears fruit. But in the drought of suffering, persecution, you know, deprivation, only those who are planted by a stream bear fruit. In a way, what Jeremiah is saying there is, Rethink this thing you thought you knew. Um, the bearing of fruit, the fruit of faith, actually might be common in times of ease and times of wealth and times of comfort. It's actually in the times of lack. It's the times of suffering where you get to see real faith bearing fruit or the fruit that you see there, you know it's coming out of faith, right? So he's, he's talking about a human experience that's expressed plainly in the covenants, and yet he's doing it in a way that makes you have to kind of come at it from another way. He creates a friction. You have to stop and sort of think through it. And in doing so, you kind of revisit it again. You know, we see this really vividly in the way that Nathan comes and brings a conviction against David. And, you know, David's committed this sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. And, and we don't get insight into Samuel as to how David feels about it. We don't know if he's being raked over the coals. Even if we look at Psalm 51, he does talk about dealing with the conviction of sin, but that might be a result of his interaction with Nathan. We don't know if he's kind of dealing with the guilt uh, ahead of time, but what does Nathan do? When Nathan comes before him, he says, Look, I'm going to tell you a story about a court case, and I need you to judge for me this, this case, which would have been common for the king, you know, to hear cases. He tells him a story about a man who only has one lamb and how the, a wealthy man who has many sheep, who has many lambs, comes and takes that one lamb and 
and by coming at it from another angle, notice Nathan doesn't come in and say, how dare you do that with Bathsheba and kill in the murder of Uriah? But what does he say? He goes, I'm going to tell you this other story. I'm going to kind of defamiliar, defamiliarize the topic for you, right? He doesn't tell him he's doing it. So it works. David responds and says, you're guilty. He's guilty. And Nathan responds, says, you're the man. And, and, and in doing that and telling that little parable, right, he's kind of going around David's senses. David might have guards up, even subconscious guards, as we have those against conviction for our sin. We, we special plead for ourselves regularly. We, we, we say, well, that person's guilty, but I, I've got extenuating circumstances, right? And so what Nathan's doing here with David is he's coming at it from another angle, forcing David to see the truth, to experience the truth about what he's done. The last example I'll use is Jesus. Jesus is using parables and even tells his disciples, I'm defamiliarizing my teaching, right? Even in that, you know, to, to a certain extent, that those who are already hardened against me, those who already are not interested in my kingdom, they're going to reject it out of hand. They won't understand. But those who are seeking the Lord, those who are seeking me, you know, we'll, we'll be able to see the truth, you know, and I'll be able, you know, we'll be able to understand uh, the, the teaching, you know, so there's even kind of a filtering going on in Jesus' teaching. So interestingly, he's, he's being deliberately defamiliarizing in his teaching. He, he's deliberately estranging his audience in such a way that we learn anew, okay, for those who are seeking him, for those who are sensitive and tender to his word, we are learning anew what his kingdom is like, and we're learning that it's like a woman who's looking for a coin, right? Or it's workers who are working for a rich man, or it's like a Samaritan, you know, who's showing love to a person he doesn't know. And all of a sudden we're now looking at these stories and we're saying, oh, okay, this is, this is coming out. It's making me see the kingdom. I might, I might've thought I knew what the kingdom of God was about, but now it's actually drawing me into it in a new and in a refreshed way. That's so interesting, Scott. And, um, my mind goes immediately to illustrations. Um, so in, in our homiletics classes, we learn about the importance of bringing ideas to, you know, down to earth for our audience through illustrations. So this sounds like it overlaps with what you're speaking. Is, is there something else there or is there, is there a distinction between, between what you're saying about estrangement and the use of illustrations? Yeah, what what would you, where would you go from there? Yeah, I think there is. There's um, so first of all, this is not like the a definition of high art. I would argue that this is something that the most basic folk art, the most basic communicator, is doing all the time. Whether it's using a saying, you know, I remember, you know, particularly if you've ever lived in the South and people have little little phrases and idioms that they use, and and oftentimes they're humorous and oftentimes they're metaphorical. And, you know, oftentimes they kind of twist a thing in a certain way, you know, and make you see it or think about it in a, in a new way. And so I, I don't think this is just like a matter of high art. So oftentimes in homiletics classes, when we talk about bringing the truth down to earth or speaking and preaching to the heart, I think sometimes students walk away with the impression that that means just saying things in a very kind of play, plain, prosaic way. Um, 
and and there might even be sort of a popular understanding that well the most the most simple teaching or, or the most effective teaching is some is the teaching in which you just say the thing you know whatever it is maybe even say it like propositionally right using plain terms that are you know kind of remove any obstacle to interpretation I don't want to say, therefore, we should preach twisted sermons that make no sense either, right? We're not saying that, but what I am saying is, is you need to know your audience. And I do think you need to know, as, as, a, as a person who is applying scripture into people's hearts, you need to know how to use the kind of language and tell the, use the kind of illustrations, tell the kind of stories to illustrate that might draw them out into seeing the text in a way that is fresh, it doesn't mean making things up. You're not trying to be new for the sake of being new. It has nothing to do with that. But it does have to do with rightly teaching the meaning of the text, but helping people see it maybe from an angle that they're not used to seeing it, right? It's a great joy as a preacher or a teacher for that matter to be able to give someone or help someone get a, a broader, more full-orbed understanding of a biblical text that they thought they understood or that they thought that they were familiar with. And again, this isn't, this isn't in order to kind of confuse them or make, you know, lift up the prestige or the reputation of the pastor or the preacher. This really is to help people experience Christ afresh. And that's what I, I mean. I pray that before I go preach say, help us see Christ anew. Okay. Um, help us to move out of the doldrums of familiarity and be able to experience Christ as he is today working in our lives. Okay. Um, so again, now the whole time you're doing that, you need to be recognizing it's beautiful to have a familiarity with the teaching of scripture. It's beautiful to have those th truths, you know, ground deep down. And yet at the same time, I think we do believe that we never stop growing. You never stop growing in your knowledge of scripture. And one of the things a good preacher, a good teacher does is he's constantly challenging his congregation to engage with the word of God and to be changed and transformed by it. And I think one of the powerful ways we do that is by presenting the information in such a way that you can get past those kind of gateways that are set up in the human consciousness about things that we think we already understand, right? And get through that. And defamiliarization is a really powerful way to do that. Thank you.